hello welcome pankaj ji how are you thank you good uh, so now the uh, the final session uh, for today um is titled um, hindu revival and its future um so we have uh, pankaj saxena I'd, i'd like to read out a, a few words about him um so before i read you know what i've written i just like to mention that i'm really excited about uh, pankaj saxena ji you know he is one of the young thinkers who holds a lot of promise and i keep reading uh, you know what he writes uh, on social media i hope you know he writes a longer version you know yeah. maybe of articles or yeah. books you know which i would love to read uh, just um, uh, something to read about him pankaj saxena is an author who writes on hindu temples indian art literature history and culture he is also deeply interested in cultural anthropology evolutionary biology and ecology he has visited more than 600 ancient tem- hindu temples on his temple uh, trails he writes for india facts indic today swarajya surf news vijayawani etc he has authored three books so far he currently works at center for indic studies indus university ahmedabad and he edits indic vartha so with that i now uh, like to request pankaj ji to please uh, uh, start his conversation with uh, conrad elst thank you uh, thank you uh, shrinivas ji am i audible yes yes yeah. uh, first of all i thank uh, uh, shrinivas ji i thank harikaran ji and indica academy for uh, giving me this opportunity to interview dr elst uh, as a kid when i was 18 and 19 years old when i stumbled across uh, the works of ice of india he was one of the greatest intellectual stars that uh, i read and so it is really I, it's not an exaggeration it's not a metaphor when i say that it is really a miracle come true for me when i get to interview him on this uh, on this event so i i cannot thank my stars uh, enough uh, dr elst namaskar uh, namaskar uh, thank you for doing whatever you do and whatever you will keep doing in future so i i shall thank you at the outset now let me get on to the first question uh, everyone is talking about right now inside india and outside india inside this movement and outside this movement that there is a hindu movement uh, and uh, uh, people are discussing a lot of things about it uh, so my question to you is uh, what is the condition of this uh, so called hindu movement and where is it leading to especially i'll just clear my context Uh, if you see the history of the past 2000 years uh, the history of prophetic monotheism versus uh, pagan polytheistic dharmic sects so on one hand if you see the history of the past 2000 years it is a very grim situation indeed unequivocally it has been a rise and rise and rise of prophetic monotheism uh, country by country nation by nation tribe by tribe uh, uh, people by people they are defeating pagan polytheistic dharmic sects um india china and indo china are the last remaining strongholds and if these are mm-hmm. strongholds then we can imagine that what other uh, countries or people uh, are uh, the situation that they are in so on one hand it's a very grim situation if you look at the history but on the other hand at the same time uh, you know you have been at the center of uh, this very important event in the lifetimes of hindus right now the rebuilding of the grand uh ram temple at ayodhya so uh, this is uh, a very big issue for hindus of course for hindu society for hindu people nation culture that everyone agrees upon 
But if you see it in a larger context, then this is the first case in which a pagan polytheistic dharmic society has managed to forcibly reclaim a, a site which has been central to them. So there was a mosque when they started this movement. It came down, it was brought down, and then with whatever means possible, legal, social, political, they are actually rebuilding the temple. This has never happened before. Only Spain mm -hmm. and Portugal have been able to reclaim their lands and some other countries in Europe, but then they are Christian culture. So they are once again, a prophetic monotheistic ideology reclaiming from another prophetic monotheistic ideology. But this is the first instance when a dharmic society has reclaimed ground from prophetic monotheism. So in these two opposing trends, on one hand, a very grim uh, record, on, on other hand, a very positive uh, sign, you can say. So my question is that, can India be the Stalingrad of prophetic monotheism? Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I still have to sort of get used to the image. But um, right now, of course, uh, that's a very optimistic thing to say in the sense that in spite of this little success in Ayodhya, Hinduism seems to go backwards still you know even with this Hindu government it is continuing the secularist and minority appeasement policies of congress uh, the numerical strength of hindus keeps on declining which means that the territorial strength is also declining because here and there pockets in india are effectively becoming islamic republics or in the south also Christian domains, like I saw the, the government poster about the, the last village in India that was given electricity. And so the main building in the picture was a Christian church. Um, so, so the uh, enemy forces are making headway and Hinduism isn't doing much against it. Um, and so that, that demographic thing, there's not much you can do against it. There's something, you, I mean, to some extent, yes, Israel has done it. In Israel, you have the Orthodox who have big families, 10 children. And unlike in Africa, their 10 children also survive. Um, then even among the seculars, you have a certain consciousness of demography like Shimon Peres as prime minister called on all Jews to have at least four children. Um, so to, to some extent that, that, that can work, but among the Hindus, as I know them, it won't work. Uh, even in India, the Orthodox also practice birth control, let alone the secular you know, Hindus. So it's just not going to happen. You know, if the Shankaracharya of Puri calls on Hindus to have bigger families, well, I think it falls on their fears. And anyway, I'm not too sure that in an already overpopulated country, a demographic race is the solution. So the thing to do is the one that is historically correct. Namely, most Muslims in India 
are converts from Hinduism. Uh, there were, of course, invaders who settled in India. So I suppose most Muslims uh, have some Arab or Turkish ancestry, a little bit of it. Uh, but mostly they are, their ancestry consists of converts. Like, for instance, all the native women who were taken as wives by the uh, Muslim invaders were, of course, native. And then the generations further on, you know, it's just native. Okay, so the problem immediately points at the solution is to reconvert them. And here we come to the Indian application of a worldwide development, which is Muslims apostatizing from Islam. Now, this is insufficiently realized in India mainly uh, because in India itself, you don't see it much. This is Muslims leaving Islam. You know, in the West, you have many pockets of strong Muslim concentration where this hardly happens. You also have areas where Muslims very much live amid non-Muslims. There it is much easier. And so you see that all while Islam is still growing demographically and institutionally because it is facilitated by the Western governments. Um, nevertheless, there's also a larger and larger number of ex-Muslims. And often they, they affirm themselves even at the risk of their lives. And um, like right now, the main uh, literature about critical about Islam is by these ex-Muslims. You know, in India, you had Sitaram Gual writing critically about Islam. Uh, he has hardly any followers, but no matter today, everyone in India can go to the internet, find the sites, often by ex-Muslims, where all the problematic verses in the Quran are listed, where all the problematic facts of Islamic history are written, and so on. So, this this um, this movement away from Islam is very much there. It is less there where Muslims are in adversarial relation with non-Muslims. You know, it is remarkably there in countries like Tunisia. You know, where Muslims are among themselves, and so on TV, on the internet, and so on, they find non-Islamic influences that appeal to them, and they grow away from Islam often still only silently, but so in some remarkable cases also very vocally and bravely. So in India, you will have less of that uh, for two reasons, because of the adversarial relation with their surroundings, but also because the secularists greatly patronize Islam, favor Islam. And you have these appeasement policies that are even continued by the BJP, so it is advantageous to be a Muslim. Now among that, you know, you will certainly have Muslims who are only Muslim in name precisely because of the advantages, but who have also mentally grown away from Islam. And um, as non-Muslims, there is not very much you can do about this. You can simply hope that 
this development away from Islam continues and gains strength, which I think ultimately it will. But certainly among these appeas about these appeasement policies, you can make all the difference. Just like in Europe, you know, the government policies can make it unpleasant to be a Muslim, can, can make the Muslims feel, oh my God, there's something wrong. What am I doing here? I don't fit in. Um, so there, I mean, within the confines of the constitution of human rights and so on, you should not discriminate against Muslims, but at any rate, you should make them feel, hey, you stand out. You know, we are uh, pluralistic and so on. You stand out by being so fanatic. And so that'll encourage them to, uh, to question Islam. And here, I, I take courage from my own experience as an apostate Catholic and who lived through a period where a whole society turned around. You see, in the northern half of Belgium, called Flanders, the Dutch-speaking part, Catholicism reigned supreme into the 60s, 70s. Everyone in my class went to mass, to church every Sunday. We were all baptized and so on and so on. Now in the 50s, like my uncle was a parish priest. And so he was the chaplain of the brass band of the women's guild of the youth movement and so on and so on. He was a typical incarnation of the all seeing eye of the church in every corner of society. That was the social reality back then. Now, only 20 years later, this was completely collapsing. And today, practically no one goes to church anymore. And so, and even Christian organizations with a long history are changing their names, are dropping the label Christian. You know, are not even pretending anymore. So Christianity is pretty much over among Europeans. So I do not exclude such a scenario for Islam anymore. Okay. So you are essentially saying that uh, there is more hope outside the Hindu movement than there is inside it for, for this to work. Well, what... Um, all these India watchers outside don't realize is that their identification of Hindu movement with the Sangh Parivar, with the RSS and its affiliates, is not correct. You see, there was always a Hindu movement outside the RSS. Even the specific identification of Hinduism with India, you know, what I call Hindu nationalism, already predates the RSS. You find it in the Uttarpara speech by Sri Aurobindo, for example. And um, for a long time, these were just individuals who had no power, who could once in a while say their thing. Uh, but now increasingly due to new technology, this organizational form of the RSS is becoming quaint. And so Hindus are self-organizing in all these uh, internet platforms. Hindic Academy, of course, is a major one. 
all these uh, all these online papers that you write for, you know, exist outside the sun, have come up outside the sun, of course, are being read also by some people. And so gradually it exerts more and more influence inside the song, which I greatly welcome. Because after all, Sang people usually have a great loyalty to the RSS, but at the same time, their prime loyalty is to Hinduism. It's only in the top rungs that they lose sight of Hinduism and are only loyal to the song. But so, you know, these people have a Hindu feeling and when they read your texts, for example, on India fact or so, uh, you know, that appeals to them. So this independent um, Hindu activism is gaining ground. And so if there is hope, you know, that's where it is. Yeah. Uh, so my next question, which you have um, already pa partly answered, is that what is the role of uh, the Sangh Parvar, the RSS in this movement? And this is the general question. The larger question uh, would be, uh, what is the role of a political movement inside a movement like this, a socio-religious movement like the Hindu revival is touted to be? Or even if, like many are claiming now, even if the politics of the movement fails, like many are claiming now that it is failing, uh, is it possible for the movement to succeed, for the social renaissance or revival to succeed, even if the politics is not up to the mark? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, there are, of course, good things that Narendra Modi has done and is doing. You know, those are no quarrel with, of course. Um, but as for specifically the Hindu cause, he is, of course, failing badly. And it's disappointing and it's worrying to that extent that a political situation like you have today, I'm not sure you will get it back. Though if in 20, uh, 24 or 29, the BJP loses power. It risks being for some time, and it risks being against a determined anti-Hindu or at least anti-Hindu thought. That's certainly uh, enemy. Uh, you see, in the 70s, uh, Jaya Prakash Narayan led a movement against Indira Gandhi. And so that was totally on the sidelines, although it made headlines in the newspapers, but politically, strictly speaking, it was insignificant. Yet then those in Congress who were against Indira, like Morarji Desai, and the other parties took heart and got together and managed to win the elections in 77 and formed an alternative non-Congress government. Even though at that time, Non-Congress was a very disparate, uh, you know, motley crowd of, of very divergent parties. Um, so this can happen again. Today, the strength of the BJP is the division of the opposition, the dividedness of the, the opposition. And you cannot exclude a scenario where some Jaya Prakash Narayan manages to unite the opposition at least unite them sufficiently for an electoral alliance that defeats the BJP. You know, this is quite possible. And then we will see whether the, you know, more pro-Hindu sounds that the Congress nowadays gives, whether these are really meant or not. 
but so it risks being a, a seriously anti-Hindu government. And then you will greatly regret that you let the time pass when you could have implemented things like the abolition of the anti-Hindu discriminations in the constitution, the abolition of the appeasement policies. So, you know, I mean, of course, the normalization in Kashmir will be a legacy to be proud of, but the really important things may not have been done and the opportunity may simply have passed. So that I think is a very serious failing on Arendra Modi's part, but he still has three years the time to correct that. So let's be optimistic. Okay. Uh, so the next question is, uh, what did Sri Ram Saruji think about uh, the performance of the RSS at the first place and the Hindu movement? Uh, we all know that Sri Sita Ramji in his later years was very critical of uh, the Sun, mm -hmm. uh, not very hopeful about it. But Sri Ram Sarubji held his opinion even to his last years. He was not very critical of the yeah. RSS. He never was. Of course, it was not in his nature to castigate individuals institution as such. He just wrote and very softly about ideas and institutions, about mm -hmm. great grand ideas. But even then you see, uh, you sense, you read between the lines when you read the entire uh, literature of Ramsarup that he was perhaps more hopeful than Sri Sita Ramji about uh, the direction of the movement. So what do you have to say yeah. about that? Yeah, first of all, the Sangpa Yuar then was not the same as what it is now. Like in 1996, the VHP, I think, had a campaign, um, Hindu India, Secular India meaning all the freedoms that the minorities enjoy are thanks to the fact that this is a Hindu country, not a Muslim country. Um, so that line is perfectly fine with me. And so I'm not surprised that Ramsa also you know, supported it. Uh, but today you see, to say that all Indians are Hindus, I don't think he would have approved of that. Yeah. Uh, but yes, you see, I mean, he was a, a diplomatic sort of person and so he didn't want to rock the boat. He saw, well, you know, today the RSS, that's what we have. So we have to make the best of it. And, you know, if they don't understand issues, well, then it is our job as intellectuals to make them see. So, yeah, so he was hopeful. And, you know, the, the, the comparison he often used was, okay, at the time of the Bangladesh war, all we had was Indira Gandhi. There were many things wrong with Indira Gandhi. Nevertheless, she won the war. And so, you know, whatever may be wrong with the RSS, well, this is what we have. Let's support it. Okay. So that was a that was a reasonable position in the 1990s. Today, of course, we are in a far better position to develop a Hindu critique of all the current situations and thus from the outside influence the RSS. Thank you. So another thing about uh, Sri Ram Sarubji uh, was that uh, without him, we would not be, uh, I think, so conscious about the side that we are fighting on. Uh, the alliance with pagan polytheistic sects all over the world that Sri mm -hmm. Ram Sarubji advocated. I don't think that all of us, our movement would have been this conscious about which camp we are fighting on. 
because yes. uh, the camp against us prophetic monotheists uh, they know very well what whom they are fighting against they know mm-hmm. that we are the these idolaters these are the worst kind of people and they have to be converted first but the idolaters do not themselves know they take their identity from the region that they belong to from the yeah. community and the country that they belong to but ram swarup ji was very very vocal in uh, uh, showing us the identification with the pagan polytheistic dharmic sect along mm. with that he was also very hopeful about hindu buddhist uh, alliance as a dharmic alliance against uh, the prophetic mm-hmm. alliance so what do yeah. you say about his take on uh, the relationship of hinduism with sister uh, dharmic sects like buddhism jainism and other pagan polytheistic sects yes well about the pagan scene in europe i know a few things and so you know it started as a sort of hippieish uh past time and it was not taken very seriously uh i'd say that in a scholarly respect it has become far better you know has a far higher quality in the sense that now you have a movements in every country of doing it historically correct or doing research into what ancient paganism was it doesn't mean that they want to revive the old sacrifice or so um i mean it's it's a it's a modern thing people understand that if we revive paganism it is as a modern religion which has references to the ancient period but is of our own time um so in that respect it is coming into its own another respect that is given undue publicity but nevertheless it's best to to, to take it into account is that here and there these movements sharply fall into nationalism um and you know as a european post war i don't think too positively of nationalism i mean you know nationalism was great in the 20s when the rss was founded but um you know with the fervor of nationhood in world war 1 but um you know after 1945 it fell into disrepute and me too i don't think too highly of nationalism though i can see you know sometimes india really means hinduism like in voice of india uh and so reviving pagan movements often call themselves ethnicos ethnic you know of their own country as opposed to christianity was which was imported or like there are arab neo pagans mind you arab neo pagans they call themselves wataniya you know national of the fatherland um so okay you know i i know how to deal with it but you know sometimes it really is nationalist in a very nasty sense and so particularly in america also in germany somewhat uh, you find groups who link germanic paganism with the nazi heritage which is very illiterate the nazis were not in favor of uh, germanic especially hitler was very uh, derogatory about it um but okay you know this is a reality so you have to do that you have to be discerning who am, who am i dealing with uh i'd say in belgium at the 
uh, encouragement of Ramsar, I became a member of a then just, just founded uh, neo-pagan society where, you know, you had the influence of a number of kids of East Front volunteers who had fought in the Nazi army and they strongly brought their own prejudices away. So my job the first year, you know, simply because of loyalty of this idea of ancient religion was to weed out these influences in which I dare say I succeeded because right now this organization, all the newcomers don't even know about this history. Um, so that's, that's really gone. It's also because of the atmosphere is changing. I mean, this uh, reminiscence of the Second World War and so on, that's, that's gone already anyway. Um, but so there you have to be discerning. But mostly that's not there. That's only falsely attributed to it by outsiders. Um, but still, I mean, as Hindus, you know, you should be careful. Then um, another thing is, another problem, is that often these groups are very new age, uh, non-serious, uh, you know, are into nature, and I mean nature worship in a sort of exaggerated way, uh, feminism and so on. So that's nice, but within the proper proportion and often does injustice to the ancient uh, traditions. Uh, though sometimes also that's necessary. Like for instance, there was a Native American movement. They came for some event in Berlin and um, everybody was getting, men and women were getting together. Now, some of the Native Americans who participated criticized it. They said, look here, you see, when we do this in our tribe, men and women are separate. Now, maybe that's the tradition that should be changed or maybe not, but at any rate, you should be conscious of it. So anyway, I mean, this is a complicated field, but the principle is entirely correct. You see what Hinduism is for India, those religions were for those other countries before Christianity displaced them. Uh, as for Buddhism, you know, you see an alliance between India and Japan at the moment. Um, but um, you see most Buddhists outside India do not associate Buddhism with anti-Hinduism the way it is happening in India. And so they're like, good Buddhists, their traditional real Buddhists, uh, as opposed to India where there's a little ideological problem. Okay, okay. So uh, in this light, uh, what do you think uh, Hindu activism outside the sun, what is the condition of uh, Hindu activism, first question, and second, we can see, as you already have mentioned in this interview, that there are some science various organizations, intellectual organizations, which are working for Hindu revival, like Indic Academy of Courts, uh, like uh, the organization in which I work, Center for mm -hmm. Hindu Studies. But, uh, do you also see other social organizations, uh, which are not exactly intellectual in nature, but which mm -hmm. are outside the ambit of the Sangha, but they are still working for Hindu revival? So, right. Yeah. Well, you see, at first I thought, well, you know, this is an interesting development, more Hindus speaking out 
more Hindu self-organization, but it is as yet only a purely verbal thing. It's mouse-clicking activism, as Rajiv Mahotra calls it. But um, then look at what happened in Kerala last year, the Sabari Mala movement. You see, this was a almost spontaneous mobilization, which was given intellectual input by people like uh, Anjali George. Uh, but so there you had an immediate, direct, spontaneous contact between the intellectual fighters and the masses on the ground. So I don't think that this is purely an intellectual pastime. Yes, that's, that's very encouraging because uh, we cannot bank uh, the revival of a complete culture and civilization just on intellectual organization. Mm -hmm. There has to be a social uh, counterpart of yes. it. So that's very encouraging. So uh, where do you think uh, this movement in total is heading towards? Uh, let's say I will try to limit it uh, more. Where do you see this movement in the next decade? Well, the next decade at any rate has a special situation that this movement or a party that claims to be part of this movement is in power. And for very long, you were in the opposition. So in the opposition, it is good to, to count on what I use, Boy Scout initiatives, little initiatives on the side, you know, using a lot of volunteer energy, you know, a lot of idealism. But, you know, that can only have results here and there a little bit. Whereas now you have the power, you know, you can reorganize the country, you can change the laws. There was a uh, five years ago, some RSS initiative to train uh, volunteers as storytellers, because they noticed that the knowledge of the Mahabharata was declining. So they wanted storytellers to go to the village and call the whole population together in the village square and tell stories. Well, that's nice, I'm not at all against it. But you see, when you have the power, you can change the school curriculum. You see, schools are far more important for a modern population than for the ancient villages. And so use your power. And so many school teachers who would never volunteer for becoming storytellers in villages will teach those stories simply because it's in the curriculum. So the fact that the BJP is not doing its job is a really serious problem. And so for the moment, I mean, I have a hard time speculating about the deeper future because for the moment, the thing to do is to somehow make the BJP people see sense. You see, they have, they have a power to make an enormous difference. And they are not using it. No. And that's that's very, very crucial. Yeah. So my last question to you would be, in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, uh, actually in my working career, when I became uh, conscious of this movement, mm -hmm. uh, another force, another very, very powerful force has entered India and Indian society. Uh, when I was growing up in, until 2000, Indian society was not as modernized. But now, in the past 20 years, 
uh, along with uh, the spread of internet and education and uh, other western things because education as we are uh, doing it right mm -hmm. now in india is a very yes. western institution yes. there is nothing indigenous about it so along with that western attitudes of atomization of uh, a society the individualistic tendencies that they are uh, now nurturing inside our kids and through education through colleges and universities so now we see that hindu uh, kids or hindu youth of now in in a large part is also concerned only about very petty and personal issues on one hand and yeah. on the other hand the muslim youth because the and the christian youth also in uh, uh, some proportion because they are also educated by their own institutions mm. and through internet they are getting stronger and becoming better and better muslims as um, uh, yes put it like that so in this is a new force uh, in india which is splintering hindu society into atoms into individuals and on the other hand also strengthening uh, the opponents of hindu culture and civilization so where do you think this will be my last question where do you think uh, our society is heading to because you have seen the breaking down of uh, society in western europe right in front of your eyes mm -hmm. change yes. happens in every generation but the change that you must have seen there and change even i have seen uh, because i was very close to my grandmother and the india that she uh, was familiar about uh, it is no longer it's like she is living in another universe mm -hmm. the india that has become now yes so yes. so the uh, society is breaking down in that regard where do you think we are heading or is this going to have a negative effect on us or a positive effect on on the movement thank you well it only proves how uh, necessary you are uh, because you know if if something isn't done to uh, you know as american conservatives say to stand at war afford history and yell stop okay if if this uh, evolution is not reversed then hindu society is simply going to disappear you know if like for instance uh, the language being taught in schools very influential because it means that people are reading not just shakespeare but all these modern new um, let's say cultural marxist woke literature which is all anti-hindu yeah. um, so they'll be conditioned mentally to at best be indifferent to hinduism or more often to be actively hostile to hinduism so it is very necessary to create public opinion in the opposite sense which is what you are doing but it is even more necessary to take control of the education system it's absolutely urgent you see, in the past, uh, people drank in Hinduism. It was in the air. It was automatically there. And so the Muslims might be in power or so, but Hindus growing up as Hindus became 100% Hindu. And now that's no longer the case. And so like the Christian missionaries, for example, greatly support the movement towards English because it means Hindus getting estranged from Hinduism. And then in a later phase, because they look long term, in a later phase, they can cooperate to the actual conversion process. So that, that's so imperative to take control of your education system, you know, to generate the correct public opinion, but to take control of the institutions. And it doesn't hurt the minorities. 
you don't have to do anything to their schools, no. but your own schools you have to take control of. I personally, but you know, I'm not a very ritualist person, but personally, I think it's more important even than taking control of your campus. Of course, I'm in favor of taking control of your campus. That also should happen. But you see, to take control of education is imperative. Thank you, Dr. Els, for this wonderful session. Uh, only someone like you, uh, who, does, who is not only focused on a subject, but he is also interested in every other uh, important thing that is happening around the world. Only he can give us a view which is so comprehensive uh, in nature, which can bring, uh, draw analogies from so many different disciplines. Once again, I thank you for giving me this opportunity of sitting in front of you and interviewing you and Indic Academy, Srinivasji Harikaran. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Pankaj. Uh, are you able to hear me? I just put on yes, a different... Yes, yeah, okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Pankaj, for your uh, very passionate, uh, you know, uh, way of asking questions and enlivening uh, you know, the atmosphere here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Conrad Elst as well um, has given a, a lot of, you know, insights into what he uh, thinks about these issues. Uh, you know, in the last, uh, the, the question uh, is about education. Um and uh, you know, Conrad uh, also talked about temples, right? You know, he he, he compared mm -hmm. these, you know, uh, these two issues. So this brings to mind immediately uh, a contrary view. I mean, for example, if you take Maharshi Dayananda Saraswati, yeah. right? You know, he is a person who completely opposed temples, right? I mean, he he didn't, he thought that was the cause of the downfall, you know, of the civilization as a whole, and he stressed heavily on education you know, as a means of you know, recovery of the civilization. Now, after his death, immediately after his death, there was a split you know, within Arya Samaj itself about you know, how seriously they would take his, yeah. uh, you know, the education uh, proposals and all that. And mm -hmm. you know, we know, you know where that went. Now, uh, but uh, um, no, Sanskrit language, uh, we, have, we have failed in being able to get that into the schooling uh, uh, system. Uh, all schooling happens in a foreign language. Well, it's, it's still, it's moving in the direction. Maybe it's not yet happened uh, across the country. But there is great promise that is being seen in the north, northern part of the country because you know, we see from the south that the Hindi-speaking people tend to have a stronger, uh, you know, um, grounding in uh, Hindi language you know, than what we see in the South. Um, and I see the great promise you know, uh, among people from the North you know, in leading uh, you know, this uh, um, country back to uh, taking up regional languages. But then the South sees it as an imposition of Hindi, right? which the North doesn't, the North or the West, you know, everywhere else where Hindi is spoken. So how do you see this language situation evolving and how do you think it will... Um, how is it linked with the education issue? And of course, uh, what education that Dayananda Saraswati talked about uh, is no longer possible, you know, because we have moved on, you know, way ahead. And mm -hmm. it is very difficult to bring us back to a point where we can somehow link uh, back to the traditional Indian, you know, education system. So where do you see all this going, uh, Conrad? Well, I request everybody else to please switch on their videos and yes.
Well, the, um, the idea of Anglo-Vedic colleges was not bad um, in the sense that I would uh, emphasize the learning of Sanskrit and um, then teach an international language at the moment it is English, okay? Uh, so yes, people should know that, but only as a second language. You see, one of the great things about Yogi Adityanath, the reason why I liked him immediately, was the first thing he did when he became chief minister. He introduced English as a second language from, from childhood onwards in the Hindi medium schools. So I saw very many reactions uh, by Hindi Valas saying, oh, this is, this is ugly, this, you know, this downgrades Hindi, this is another victory for English and so on. But no, you see, that was necessary in order to make the Hindi medium schools survive. You see, the, the common people want their children to learn the language of, of, of career making. You know, the language that has a future. At the moment, that's English, but I would not say, as many Andresiwalas do, the people want their children to have school in English. That's not true. They want their children to have schooling in a language that gives them a future. Now, this is where the government comes in. It is for the government to decide whether that language will be English. Now, you see, there are Nobel Prizes for Russians and Chinese and Japanese and so on. Many of them have grown up without even knowing English. Nowadays, they also learn English as a second language in school. They can participate in international conferences taking place in English. Nevertheless, their work and especially their thinking is still done in Russian, in German, in Chinese and so on. So that it is totally false that uh, learning through English medium is necessary to be on board with modern developments. So the government can easily decide that it will from now on promote uh, teaching through the mother tongue and also um, promoting the knowledge of Sanskrit. You see, in 1947, when India became independent, they had practically chosen for Sanskrit. You know, there was a vote in the language committee of the Constituent Assembly, which was 50-50. And then the chairman, uh, Rajendra Prasad, voted for Hindi. This was a very unfortunate event because Hindi has no chance of becoming the link language. It is quite reasonably presented by South Indians, by Bengalis, uh, who don't, you know, value Hindi anyway. I think it's a very boorish language. Um, whereas Sanskrit had a fighting chance. Of course, Sanskrit is difficult, but then it is difficult for everyone. You see, it doesn't discriminate. It already has a position. You know, everybody already looks up to it. It would have given uh, India a lot of prestige worldwide, whether for the Buddhist reason or for the Indo-European reason, uh, or simply for the nationalist reason. Every 
decolonizing country at the moment would look up to this ideal of reviving our own, you know, reviving our native language rather than English. At any rate, in the Constituent Assembly, everyone, 100%, was of the opinion that decolonizing from the British meant doing away with English. So I still think that that is the correct, uh, the correct um, solution. However, I also see that at the moment, this is far more difficult than in 1947. So, you know, to pull that off, you know, Hindus will have to do some tough thinking and then mobilize in a big way. And I, I haven't really figured out yet how to do that. But so the ideal of um, reducing English to purely a second language that I'm all for. Thank you, Conrad. Uh, uh, yeah, Shibaji, go ahead, Punks. Uh, yeah, I would just like to add one one thought and then finish. Uh, you mentioned uh, Maharshi Dayanandji. Uh, somehow he saw a conflict between pursuing education on one hand or uh, supporting uh, an old institution like the Hindu temple on the other. I have been studying the Hindu temple for the past seven or eight years, and I do not see any conflict between the two. On the other hand, uh, I see it as the largest and the strongest Hindu institution, which can actually carry both. Uh, when you go to a functioning living temple, Vedas are not the only thing that are being studied there. If you cover all the uh, subjects, all the disciplines of arts and fine arts, even philosophy, you will see that a lot of learning is going on in those temples. And one, uh, we keep talking about uh, the left ecosystem and how they are very strong or the Christian ecosystem or the Islamist ecosystem. And we often view that they are so immediate in reactions and one thing happens in France and the reaction happens in Bhopal. And we view that the Hindu side does not have that kind of ecosystem. That is very true. But in order to create an intellectual ecosystem of that kind, you have to destroy a lot within the civil society. You have to destroy a lot of freedom inside a free culture like Hindu dharma is. On the other hand, if we stick with institutions which are very living, very lively, like the Hindu, inst uh, Hindu temple, and proceed uh, uh, congregate around these institutions which are still very, very living and then proceed with our education. I guess uh, both the problems will be solved. My apologies to Maharshi Dayananji, but I don't think there is any uh, there is mm -hmm. any conflict between pursuing education and preserving that temple. That's all. No, I mean, I'll just make one comment before I move on to the questions that were asked by uh, another participants. I mean, it's not that there is a, a direct conflict there, but it is actually a, a matter of... Uh, 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 focus in the sense Priority. if yeah and, and and you know if if one has to, one can't think in a vacuum you know suddenly intellectual development doesn't uh, arise out of nowhere right you know one has to be connected to the tradition and the questioning has to be around the uh, you know what has been received you know the received wisdom you either negate it or you no know, uh, you maybe extend it you know or maybe you know you deny it or whatever you know it's against and within uh, the context that already exists, you know, that one can progress, right? And that is precisely uh, uh, you know, what uh, uh, decolonizing would mean, you know, that you're actually able to engage with the tradition, right, yeah. in a meaningful fashion, you know, that you're able to actually extend it or whatever, you know, move within yeah. that. You're able to ask the same or similar questions, or, you know, provide answers which were not given in the past. Now, in, you know, temple is 
obviously you know uh, a different uh, uh, thing you know compared to engaging with the tradition engaging with the tradition the primary way one would do is by dealing with the texts right the study of the text uh, you know would be the most important thing to do but you don't see that uh, you know anymore within the uh, traditional uh, you know scholars uh, um, they are completely cut off uh, from the modern education so there is no questioning per se it's just wrote uh well i you know I, i shouldn't make such huge generalizations but i have to be careful but not as much as one would believe so there are two universes that yeah. right? one very small traditional one and one growing massively growing large one which are going in parallel and they are not talking to you know each other in fact i remember uh, um varakedi shrinivas ji you know who is the vice chancellor of kalidas sanskriti university now in one of his lectures he was saying you know we complain that people like sheldon pollock keep saying that sanskrit is dead sanskrit is dead and you say no it is not dead right so then he says you know when a person is lying on the table and he's been brought to the hospital you poke him you know you uh, you know you put a knife on him you hit him he is not moving he is not responding he is not doing anything won't you call him dead <laughs> right so that's exactly you know what's going on here thank you uh, very much the question i have from uh, ram c is what are your thoughts on sri aurobindo bindo and his vision for future of india yes well um let me criticize aurobindo a little bit okay um, you see he was brought up in the west and um he had the whole education that westerners have but the best the most educated of westerners have he knew latin and greek he won prizes in competitions in different languages writing essays um but so his um his main contribution to yoga at any rate is that he brought in the modern western idea now pretty universal of evolution and so i don't know if that's an enrichment evolution is something that happens in nature uh, nature which is the uh, the opposite pole of the purusha of consciousness and so whether in yoga evolution has much meaning i'm not too sure you see maybe that doesn't take the very indian distinction between <laughs> nature and consciousness sufficiently seriously but i mean i'm not finished with this but that's my hunch now anyway is it in for india well you see is i already quoted his utar para speech you know where he links indian nationalism with sanatana dharma that of course makes sense now of course sanatana dharma is bigger than india and is now taking its place uh both through expatriate communities and also through converts uh in the rest of the world uh so in that sense his view is a bit antiquated but you know of course it's essentially the correct view you see if india is to be true to itself it should rediscover revive the sanatana dharma that i'm all for and so his uh is you know hindu nationalism i mean in those days nationalism was all the rage uh is a very sane one 
a very healthy one. That, that of course, I greatly support. Then his viewpoints on some specific political developments. Uh, of course, there too, you know, he clearly had his heart in the right place and his mind in the right place. Like when he called Mahatma Gandhi a little crack, you know, that made sense. I mean, there were very, there were good things about Mahatma Gandhi, but the ones which were politically most consequential, unfortunately, were not so good. So he correctly saw it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's a question from Riddesh Seth. He says, do you think anti-conversion laws and uniform civil code will enable India to combat demographic uh, warfare by Islamists and Christian missionaries? Or do we, do, no, do Indic faiths have to become missionary? Right. Well, the first thing, I, my answer can be very clear. You see, I'm all for a common civil code. It's, it's the essence of secularism. You know, like the Belgian constitution says, all Belgian citizens are equal before the law. And um, so that, that should be there in India. I mean, it's not a demand of Hinduism. Hindu societies in the old days did not have a civil, common civil code. I mean, by caste, by, mainly by caste, there were different rights for different people. Like a Brahmin could be fined for being drunk on the street, whereas for a Shudra, this was deemed normal. But a Shudra who committed murder would get the death penalty and a Brahmin would not, uh, and so on. So there was no common civil code there, and it worked. Now, in a modern society, I think we should have a common civil code. And so that should also extend to people who believe in Allah or in Jesus Christ. Um, but though I am for it, I do not expect the benefits that the questioner attributes to it. You see, Muslims are going to continue to have large families, even under a common civil code. In, in Europe, there are common civil codes. And yet, you see, the demographic uh, difference between Muslims and the rest is also there. So that won't make a difference. Yeah, there are a few cases of Muslims practicing polygamy, maybe, you know, having 25 children instead of five. That, 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 that's, yeah, that's a factor. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's quite marginal. At any rate, it will not do the trick. Um, also, if Muslims become more prosperous, it doesn't follow, as it has done in the West and as it is doing among Hindus, that they're going to have fewer children. Uh, take for instance, Osama bin Laden, he had five wives and 30 children. See, among traditional Muslims, the idea is that if, if you are fortunate enough that Allah has given you riches, you should use them to have a big family. So, you know, I don't expect you can win the demographic war. And um, so for that, you know, Hindus should become a missionary religion. That's not how I would put it. But yes, you know, you have a great interest in bringing Indians of different faith back home. Gharvapasi or Shudhi as the Arya Samaj called it. That is a good idea. I'm all for it. Though I notice that 
in the beginning of Narendra Modi's government, the secularists made a big hue and cry about some case of Garvapasi, and immediately the BJP politicians distanced themselves from it. They wanted nothing to do with Garvapasi. You know, as if the conversion policies of Muslims and Christians are any, any better, which they do accept. Uh, so I'm all for Garvapasi, <laughs> though you see, in, in its present state, it's something that works at a village level uh, and it has some successes to its credit. But you know, among a modern educated urban population, it sounds a bit quaint. There, I think the stuff that I'm working on is more, uh, more useful, more consequential. Namely, you have to uh, do a critical scanning of these religions and see and show why modern educated people should not stoop to this level. You see, Christianity may have certain merits, you know, Mother Teresa or whatever, but at heart, it makes no sense. You see, it is not true that Jesus was the son of God, at least in another sense than, than everybody is. Uh, it is not true that original sin is the cause of mortality. Animals who don't sin nevertheless also die. Uh, and it is certainly not true that Jesus rose from the dead, nor is it true that his rising from the dead cleared our sinfulness. You know, these are the basic dogmas of Christianity and they are obviously not true. Take my own case. You see many people leave Christianity because they have some grudge against it because they've been raped by the priest or, uh, you know, all the unpleasant social effects of Christianity. Now, I didn't have that at all. You see, I've, Christianity has never done me any harm. I have very good memories of my time in the church choir and so on. But I just saw it's not true. And so nowadays, you see, you will have many Muslims who, when they examine Islam critically, when you know certain things are pointed out to them that they've missed during their religion class um that they too will start thinking twice and and you know taking a more critical look at islam and ultimately leaving it but i admit that that you see is at the moment something targeted at some very few people you know, at a mass level, I don't expect any big changes immediately, but, you know, I would count on the general evolution, both outside and inside India, towards better education, you know, more scientific temper, as they call it. Um, so that will make a difference, whether fast enough, I can't predict. But ultimately, Ultimately, it is very sure that Islam and Christianity will disappear. Probably Islam in a more explosive manner than Christianity, just as it started in a more explosive manner. Um, but so what goes up must come down. Whereas what is Sanatha is going to survive. <laughs> so actually there's a related question. Uh, there's several questions around this. So I, I'm just rephrasing them. Usha BN, you know, basically, and others as well. The question is that um, 
with the increasing self assertion of hindus where do you see the country heading is it going to be a civil war kind of a situation will there be street battles that we will see in the near future yeah uh, how do you see uh, you know beyond the decade which uh, pankaj ji mentioned you know right. in the next 100 years what where do you think where do you see this going well as i just said i am very optimistic for the long term <laughs> but before we get there many things can still happen including civil war <laughs> and um so you see hindus would be foolish to provoke it like for instance um a common civil code see insisting on a common civil code right now there are far more important issues it is those that you should insist on you see equality in the constitution that is important then of course after that is done then hindu civil society will have to prove its merit because you know the fact that you can have your own schools doesn't automatically mean that you make a useful instrument of those schools that you will have to do yourself but that's what you have in a free society if you don't have a dictatorship then you have to you know uh, come out of your uh, couch and and do something um but nevertheless those things are very consequential whereas a common civil code is not you know it's a, it's a it's a correct principle but it's it's not a priority and so if you insist on it there you will get i don't know a civil war at any rate you will get massive protest every mosque in india because there you know they the muslims see this sharia as an intrinsic part of islam so they will say oh but you are hurting freedom of religion even though you see muslims are living in france under secular secular laws nevertheless for india they will say oh we are being persecuted by this ugly overbearing hindu majority um and so they will feel emboldened to to take to the streets to take to arms and so it's a very dangerous situation sometimes in life dangerous situations are unavoidable but here you see it is totally unnecessary you concentrate on the essentials there's a question from uh, ambika s uh, so uh, you had mentioned in your twitter um, post that you are planning to write in detail about history of castes in india yeah when do you think uh, this will come out well i have to correct that a little bit i mean i don't have much to add about the the detailed history of caste like uh, just yesterday i heard on zoom a lecture about the kakatiya dynasty in andhra how they were shudras proud of being shudras and uh, also at the same time giving agraharas to brahmins and so on so not at all living up to the leftist stereotype that you see they were anti brahmin because they were shudra and they facilitated the transition to islamic rule on the contrary they fought the muslims and um and the muslims in return didn't didn't give them a better treatment because they were shudra no you see once the kakatiya king was captured you see he was taken as captive he was tortured to death um so you know such details are like beyond me you know it's too late in life to to really get to know all of that so that i leave very much to indians however yes the the whole idea of caste and how it evolved there i think i can contribute and so in a few words 
what Hindus must know about it. Um, Dayananda Saraswati was correct in saying that the Vedas didn't know caste. At least the family books of the Rig Veda are totally without caste. Then it starts appearing. At least the idea of a division in society starts appearing in the Purusha Sukta. But it's not about caste. It doesn't say endogamy. It doesn't say hereditary profession. You know, the, the people of constitutive things of caste. But so in the Mahabharata, you see it start and then testimonies by the Buddha, for example, you see it evolve. First, it's a patrilineal system. You have the caste of your father. Your mother's caste is not, not important at all. Like uh, Vyasa, Brahmin par excellence, was the son of a Brahmin father and a fisherwoman, the mother. And um, so um, then the element of endogamy came in, probably first among the elites, uh, like uh, Prasenajit in the life of the Buddha, and, uh, and then general life. And this fits with the genetic findings that caste endogamy is not older than 2000 years. Now, to, to say, oh, it is totally on Hindu, it has nothing to do with Hinduism, that is not correct. You see, it does not have to do with the basic doctrines of Hinduism, that is correct. Um, so to say like Ambedkar did caste the soul of Hinduism, that's historically inaccurate. However, for about 2000 years, caste was very much a part of, of, of Hindu sensitivities. They cared a great deal about caste. And so it's only now that it is eroding and even now secular politicians are trying to keep it alive for electoral purposes. Um, so, you know, there you should take a nuanced view of caste. So no caste is not Hinduism. Hinduism can exist without caste. Like for instance, the overseas communities in Suriname and in Holland have no caste, you know. I mean, after some generations of living there, they forgot about it. And um, so this is perfectly possible, Hinduism without caste, if that's what you want. Um, but so, uh, I mean, Hindus are too quick to fall into the polemical positions uh, suggested by the enemy side. The enemy side is totally against it and identifies it totally with Hinduism. And therefore, militant Hindus are totally denying that it is Hindu. Well, <laughs> the truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, so there's uh, some questions about the uh, what's happening in France uh, and how it links back to us. So, uh, I mean, I'm rephrasing uh, the questions here because I multiple questions. Um, the whole issue um, under discussion should actually be about uh, Islamic prohibition for Muslims of any sort of a pictorial representation of, you know, uh, their self-proclaimed uh, prophet, right? Now, but because of the, the way in which the cartoons were done, right, which probably uh, are disagreeable to many Hindus as well, right? The focus has shifted to the disagreeable nature of the cartoons rather than the, the, the very fact of simple fact of representation of the yeah. self-proclaimed self prophet, right? So, 
So probably what the French have done in terms of uh, depicting disagreeably is in fact uh, taking away uh, from the whole debate of uh, the Islamic imposition of their will that, well, it is not just the Muslims who is not supposed to draw any or you know, make representations of the self-proclaimed prophet, but even others you know, should not. Which normally, you know, if, if somebody is not doing it in a disagreeable fashion, they should not have any issue with it. But still, that is not the case. So this whole uh, you know, Charlie Hebdo thing actually uh, takes the whole uh, debate in a different direction altogether, which is not very amenable to pointing out the fact that you know, what is Muslims are asking for is you know, unreasonable, that you know, others should also not make any sort of a representation. So that's one thing. Second thing is that ex-Muslims, you know, like uh, Armin uh, Nawabi, right? So they do something similar, you know, by uh, drawing offending, uh, you know, cartoons and pictures about Hindu goddesses and gods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're placing themselves in a position where Hindus who are actually, uh, uh, you know, feeling good about you know, what Charlie Hebdo is doing, suddenly are very upset, you know, when yeah. they see what uh, Armin uh, Nawabi does. So the the so the clearly uh, the issue uh, you know here is a little you know entangled and you know confused right mm-hmm. um, uh, and Hindu positions are also a little confused you know here you know yes uh, they are so what is your opinion they about are. this <laughs> yeah well let me first uh, return to the distinction between the state and civil society okay you see. What the French state has to be concerned about is its legal system of freedom of speech. So whatever is on the cartoons, the French state has to defend it. It has not to defend the fact that that particular drawing is made, has to defend the fact that it is allowed to make these drawings, whatever they are. Uh, As for civil society, well, okay, one, one existing current within it is that Charlie Hebdo current that is very extreme and nasty, not only extreme, you know, or nasty against Muhammad, but also against all kinds of uh, personalities and currents and phenomena within French society, including Catholic religion um, and so on. But um, their civil society can react. You see, if you don't like this kind of cartoon, you may make your point by, for instance, boycotting the paper that published them. You can write to them, you can say everywhere, you know, there's an alternative way you can produce better, more tasteful cartoons that make the same point, but in a less crass manner. Uh, so, uh, So that's what you can do in this case too. You can also protest, you know, if, if you think these things are worth protesting, then you can protest civilly, uh, like, uh, for instance, there was a French company that uh, depicted Hindu gods on, I think, toilet paper. And so the Hindu human rights group in London organized a demonstration before the French embassy. Um, impersonating all kinds of French things like the guillotine, you know, the beheading machine and so on, but just, you know, to create the atmosphere that, hey, you know, uh, France, you know, think of your own traditions and stop doing this, you know, you wouldn't want to have this done to yourself. And effectively that stopped. 
you see that company revoked its, its, its policy. So in India too, just this morning, I saw the, um, the poster that you clearly refer to with two naked Hindu goddesses in lesbian embrace. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that may not be nice. Well, there are civil ways to protest against it and these can be very successful, like take the Tanishk campaign. Ah. There was no government action. There was no RSS action and so on. There simply were a few people on social media creating opinion about it, drawing attention to the absurdity. And so the company withdrew, uh, withdrew this, this cartoon or this, this, this uh, drawing. So, you know, there is no need to call for uh, diminishing freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is essential. I mean, to have a democracy, it is essential that people can say and can read and see uh, all the opinions available. But I'm a freedom of speech fundamentalist. And so I don't see here any reason to, you know, to change that. Okay, uh, there's a question from Poonam Sharma. So, sir, do you believe in Go ahead. universal, uh, just, just to add to your question, do you, do you believe in universal value system and absolute freedom of speech? Or do you think that uh, there is a, uh, the West box that they are relativism, but do you think it is possible in context of uh, Sanatan Dharma has always gone about uh, multiple value systems, banked itself mm. on multiple value systems? So yeah. Think... Yeah. Um, about that, I haven't thought deeply enough. But um, at any rate, I think on the issue of freedom of speech, this is not a problem. You see, again, I do think freedom of speech is fundamental. So, you see, if in India you want to do something insulting to the Hindu gods, I still think you can do it. You know, though you have to, uh, of course, accept all the disapproval you will get. You don't need to be beaten up for that, but there are ways of okay. making it very unpleasant to continue this. <laughs> okay, I have a, a question from Poonam uh, Sharma. Uh, she, <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, uh, she. Uh, uh, Conrad Elst, will you be writing more about your encounters with Sita Ram Goel and Ram Swaroop? Your previous work about them has been a delight to read. Mm -hmm. I think they're talking about your uh, the communalist uh, book, probably. Yeah, the edited volume. Well, uh, about Ram Swaroop, I am writing down uh, my memories at the moment. Uh, so we hope to have a Sita Ram Goel centenary conference on the 16th of October. Uh, next year, 2021. 20, um, and so by that time, this book on Ram Sarup should be finished. Um, so that I'm working on about Sita Rangwal. Well, I don't think I have much to add to what I wrote in 2005. But it, yeah, it is imperative to do that now, because now there are still people who knew them alive. And so let me take the opportunity to make a call to everyone who knew them or, or even who was just influenced by them to write down what you know. Because, you know, just for the sake of history writing, it's very important that this is done now because soon it will be too late. Yes. 
Ramakrishnanji, uh, you have a question. Please go ahead and ask. You're muted. Okay. Am I audible now? Yes. Okay. You are. So uh, this is a question I wanted to ask. Uh, you know, in the Buddhist text, there is a description, physical description of uh, 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 Gautama Buddha. So from this, is it possible that the Shakyas themselves were a Central Asian tribe? Yes, uh, there are a number of scholars who say so, like Michael Witzel, for example, uh, who points out that Shakya looks suspiciously like an Indian bastardization of the word Shaka, meaning Scythian, which is a Central Asian Iranian tribe. And so we have after the uh, desiccation of the Saraswati and of the whole uh, Harappan area, a lot of migration eastwards. And so some tribes mentioned in the Vedic period uh, in Western India, Northwestern India, you do see some of them reappear in greater Magadha in the Buddha's area uh, centuries later. So this tribe might be one of them. And so his physical description as tall and white compared to the average Bihari um, may indeed indicate that. And I'll add another argument. The Shakya tribe was uh, endogamous, was very endogamous. You see, in the Brahmin tradition, there are so-called forbidden degrees of consanguinity. You can't marry your sister, you can't marry your niece. You know, only then it starts. I think uh, on the maternal side, you can um, marry your next cousin. On the paternal side, it's still two more degrees. But anyway, there is this obligatory distance in, in blood kinship. Now, this is not the case among the Shakyas. Like the Buddha himself had only four great-grandparents. Normally, you have eight of them, which means that the, um, how is it again? The, um, the great-grandfather on the paternal side married the sister of the great-grandfather on the maternal side, something like this. Um, so there was a lot of inbreeding within this family. So the Buddha himself was a very incestuous child. And, and all the Shakyas were. Now, you see, among the Iranians, that was the custom, cousin marriage, as it still is in Islam, as it also was among the Dravidians. You see, there it has declined under Brahminical influence, but it was also there. And um, so, in fact, if I were a Dravidian separatist, I would immediately use that as an argument. Hey, the Buddha was a Dravidian. That's why he was anti-Vedic. <laughs> but so, you see, that could also be an indication for an Iranian provenance. Now, I don't think it makes any difference. But yeah, you see, historians research so many things that have no consequences. So yeah, it, it, it could be. I'm open to the possibility. 
Okay. Thank you very much, Conrad. Uh, we have a lot more questions and some more questions have appeared. So I'll, what I will do is I will uh, export all these questions from Zoom and I'll send the file to you. You could yeah. probably respond to them on Facebook, you know, if not Twitter. Um, but uh, there's one comment from Meenakshi Jain Ji, which I'd like to read, uh, you know, before we uh, end uh, the uh, session for uh, today. Uh, so Meenakshi Jain says this, Conrad's life has truly been dedicated to presenting a deep understanding of Indian civilization in its various facets. Conrad has contributed enormously to our understanding of Indian civilization. His range is amazing and he is the first author one goes to for a decolonized view of our past. Looking forward to his new publications. So that's what he says. With that, I'd like to thank Conrad uh, uh, LSG uh, for spending this time with us and giving a, a peek uh, you know, into your uh, thought. And uh, uh, I thank all the... Uh, uh, speakers today, Ramakrishnanji and Ashutoshji, Pankajji, and also Harikiranji, uh, for taking time to be on this uh, program and talking to Konradji. I thank all the attendees as well for sticking on. We are almost 40 minutes you know, beyond uh, schedule, mm -hmm. but it was a fantastic uh, uh, event, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the recordings from Vish Srinivas and uh, Koti Ramprasadji. I mean, they've been the hosts and Mm. taking care of all the logistics aspects of this. I thank them as well. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Good day. You, Good day. Namaste. 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 And thank you, Srinivasji and uh, Harikiranji. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.